This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia. And this week's guest is a culture critic named John Semley. John wrote a book called Hater on the Virtues of Utter Disagreeability, a book I read and a book I loved and a book that I felt s- such a deep kinship with that I wanted to have its writer on as a guest to discuss its subjects and that writer is John Semley and yeah I think this this episode was great I, I mean I we touch on a lot of things that I care a lot about and think a lot about um just sort of on my own and um I've been called a hater at various times in my life Um, and I've always sort of been not so much bothered by that, but I've found it curious because in my own mind, I just think I have strong opinions about things. Uh, uh, if I don't like them, I'm liable to hate them. And if I do like them, I'm liable to love them. But I don't think of myself as someone who just knee jerk hates things, and I certainly don't want to hate things. I go to things wanting to like them. It's not my fault that they fucking suck. Um, But these are things that I go back and forth with. You know, am I a hater? Is it even a bad thing to be a hater? What is it? Uh, All this stuff. From there, we kind of get into the weeds about specific things that we both hate. Surprisingly, we don't disagree that much, which was a bit of a disappointment, but uh, I told John I'd have him back and uh, make sure that we discuss things that we disagree about so we can sort of hate on each other. But I had a blast uh, having this conversation with John. Thank you, John, for for, uh, giving us your time. And I hope you guys dig the conversation as much as I dug having it. Okay. being interested in wanting to talk to me it's kind of a left field surprise <laughs> well i mean i i became aware of 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 your book uh haters uh and i was automatically just intrigued and once i listened to it i i i got an audiobook and i and i, I was happy to find that it was narrated by you uh and so it was imbued with the proper uh, energy and spirit uh but but i was i found myself sort of i i like 
I'm a writer and, and, and I, I, I tend to pace when I'm getting ideas and it's flowing. And anytime I'm not actually at the keys uh, I, of the keyboard, I'm, I'm, I'm up and pacing. And I was doing that while listening to your book. So, so it definitely got me good uh, uh, where it counts. So I'm super excited to get into it. Um, but yeah, when, when, if you want to like frame yourself just a little bit for the audience, like before we jump, jump in, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we can just dive, dive right in. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a journalist and critic. Uh, I write predominantly about uh, movies and books, I guess. Um, and an occasional radio commentator in Canada. I don't know. If you need to pay someone to have an opinion about stuff, <laughs> I can be your guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good gig. The way you say it, the, the, framing it like that makes it sound like the best gig on earth. Um, but yeah, so I think we should start with, with your book uh, because I think that that provides sort of like a central place to sort of jump off from. What, when, when, did, when did your book come out uh, and, and, and how long have you been sort of the, uh, a face of haterdom since its publication? Yeah. Uh, so my, the book Hater came out in 2018, fall of 2018 um, in Canada and the U.S., and it kind of came about, I mean, to the extent that I'm a face of haterdom, I don't know, that guy <laughs> probably goes to like Ice-T or something. <laughs> uh, but I, I, was, I, I was talking with an editor, um, and I was actually working on a different book project at the time, or I was floating a proposal, and we were just kind of sitting down and uh, talking about sort of current events and, you know, the things that people like to write about these days, and I guess what he took from me was that I hated everything. <laughs> uh, you know, like he'd bring something up. I'd be like, I'd be like, Oh, that sucks. Right. Those people are total Philistines, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, this editor was like, well, you should write a book about like the history of contrarian thought. So I put together that proposal and then he goes, you know what? Forget the history. Mm. Just follow the sort of argument and write kind of a long form essay. Uh, so that's the sort of genesis of the book. But, you know, if you read it, you can see that there's, it's engaged with some history and philosophy and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it, it actually that makes sense of it, that it started out as a history of because it is sprinkled with with that kind of stuff, which is which is sort of an, an added bonus to anyone interested in it. I'm curious, actually, that that meeting makes me wonder did, is is being because I find that there's now because I'm 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 a similar th I sort of I'm I'm conflicted about uh, the way I'm perceived a bit in conversation and things like this, because I feel like every once in a while, just out of the gate, I'll get put in this sort of like corner as like, Oh, you're just a hater, you know? And I, I'm assuming you, you run into that too. Once you really start to in a conversation like that, when your feelings come out, you're passionate about something you really don't like a lot of shit, but the, how do you feel? How did you feel before you actually wrote the book about the actual label hater? I'm curious. Well, yeah, like you say, I've I've certainly had that experience where people and the way you phrase it exactly, oh, you're just a hater. Yeah, and it it is literally those sorts of interactions that made me want to think about this about what it means to be a hater, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because the presumption there is that you don't actually dislike these things; you're just kind of affecting it to be negative, totally. right? Uh, which I found frustrating for two reasons. The first is. I genuinely dislike a lot of things. Right, it's not right. a put. It's not a put on uh, necessarily. But then the other thing is, I, I feel like as I write about in the book, you know, one of the premises is that we live in this culture that is in certain ways so overwhelmed with positivity yeah. that I almost think there's a virtue to being negative, 
even if it's for the sake of working through an argument or for subjecting something to a certain level of criticism. And, you know, certain people have written about this book have been like, well, that's by no means a new idea, Yeah. which, of, of course, it's not. I, right. mean, I go back to, like, you know, the devil's advocates and, you know, church canonizations and stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I think that there's, like, we live in kind of this cultural milieu of post-taste, right? Where it's mm. like, a- a- everything has some sort of quality. There's no judgments about, is this good? Is this bad? Everything just kind of exists on this flat plane of acceptability. Mm. Uh, and if I hate anything, it's that. Yeah. Um, so, so the book was kind of trying to work through, A, this idea that, you know, being calling someone a hater is really just a reaction that proceeds from this idea that we should have no judgments about anything. Right. Um, and B, that, you know, like the subtitle is The Virtues of Utter Disagreeability, mm. that maybe there is a virtue in playing the role of the hater, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. I, it, I share that exactly. When someone sort of does that thing, it's almost like it almost comes with a hand wave or an eye roll. They're like, oh, you're just a hater. Like, oh, you're one of those. And it's this right. weird thing where it's, it's, it, there's, impl- there's implicit expectation that actually you should like more things. And I find that to be at sort of loggerheads with my entire experience of interacting, particularly with art, uh, but really with, with anything. I mean, it's, things are not there for, to just to be liked. And if you don't like them, then, then that is an unacceptable or even deviant opinion. That's, that, to me, is just not my framework for how I even look at it. You know what I mean? And as, as you're saying, it is not a put-on. If you don't like a thing and you're saying it, you just generally don't. It's easier, actually to say that you do like a thing so you avoid that conflict if you don't if you just can put on any opinion if i could just put on any opinion and carry that out in the world and feel good about myself doing it i would just say i liked everything because that's fucking easier you know what i mean but i do care and these things affect me and if i hate something it's because i hate it not because i want to hate it or want you to think i hate it or want to be someone in the world who hates things you know and it's almost like this um diminishment of your opinion almost out of hand yeah, and I mean, do you get that thing where people say stuff to you like, oh, you must be a lot of fun at parties? Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. That's another line I can't fucking say. Because it's like, I think it is fun to yeah. go to parties and discuss these things and like argue about it a bit. But, you know, the other thing is like, often this has to do with things that exist at the most massive levels of our popular culture. Like, you know, I've gotten hate mail like and not not hate mail in the way that i'm saying oh it's productive to be a hater but just like deranged right. reactionary emails from people because i will have critical opinions of a marvel comics movie or like a book by the best-selling psychologist jordan peterson yeah you know yeah and it's like th- these are things that are so you know universally and often unproblematically adored that the idea of throwing a little bit of cold water on it i mean i think these things require that People yeah. will literally get mad, or back in the day it used to be more of a thing, if you would, quote, sink the tomato meter rating of a film. Like, if you were the one critic who didn't think Toy Story 3 <laughs> was the best movie ever made, it's like you were trying to ruin it for everyone else. And it's like, there, there's like a level of psychosis in yeah. that behavior. Like, a, a, a sort of cult-like posturing that I find really disturbing because, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about hatred in the way where it's like, you're picking on people below you. It's like hating a Marvel comics movie. It's like hating Coca-Cola yeah. or McDonald's or Mike Bloomberg. You know, it's, it's, it's not an, some sort of underdog thing that I'm picking on, but yeah, for some reason, the, the energies of fan cultures just kind of exist to get around the largest sort of cultural behemoths on the planet. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, I 
I find it personally frustrating and yeah. uh, critically certainly something that needs to be pushed back against. Right. I, I mean, that is that rings so true for me. I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I think of this sort of entrenched defense that's there for these, it's basically when the, when someone is gets angry at your opinion of not liking a Marvel movie, that's like someone getting mad at you for not wanting a Happy Meal. It's the yes. most fucking corporate bullshit sort of uh, uh, creativity by committee thing that you could ever possibly conjure. It is designed by suits and put through all of their equations to make sure the most possible people buy a fucking ticket and you're going to act like it's some fucking work of art on the level of anything that could ever call itself art. It's just demented to me. It's truly demented to me. And and it's a symptom of of now, I think, because because that that the sort of bullying it's almost like the the social media platforms become this 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 sort of behemoth bully against anyone who doesn't like things that are insanely popular already and that is sort of that seems just bad for things but in particular culture where it's like as you're saying and as you sort of embody this in the world you know especially in reading your criticism uh it, it's of uh, films it's it's sort of like to just go out there and with some dull opinion of is this good or is this bad, even that isn't good. But when you're all for when people are f- feel forced to like a thing that everyone already fucking likes, it, it's just it's truly demented to me. And, and it seems it seems new. Does it does this particular strain of sort of everyone loves it, so you have to love it too, this sort of bully mentality, is that sort of in your eyes, is that sort of a symptom of social media? Is that new? Like, wh- where where are you on that specifically? Well, I, I think, okay, so the, the Marvel thing is not just a case study, but I think it's indicative of the larger structure of how these things kind of work, right? Um, and, you know, I got in trouble from some readers when I, I reviewed one of the Avengers movies, and I said something like, you know, there's the old joke with pizza and sex that even when it's bad, it's good. With mm. the Marvel movies, it's the opposite. Even when they're good, they're bad. <laughs> Meaning that, like, even if one of them is entertaining, the net effect of them on culture itself is deleterious and negative, yeah. right? Uh, so, you know, I enjoyed Black Panther enough, but I still think the structure that creates Black Panther and the effect that it has on our culture is wholly negative. Much like I enjoyed the movie Avatar, but I realized that it had a negative effect on, on movie going. Right. Anyways, but with the Marvel stuff, with these sorts of pop culture behemoths, I think a lot of it has to do with this sort of Revenge of the Nerds narrative, right? Mm. And, I, and I grew up, I was among these people. I used to read comic books. I used to collect Clear Ultra Spider-Man cards, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it, that, that was a thing when you were in middle school. It if you were into like Spawn or Final Fantasy Seven, where you would get bullied and get made fun of and called like homophobic slurs. Yeah. So when when these things then become the you know the pinnacles of mass culture, not just the most popular things of our era, but some of the most popular things in the history of culture. Yeah. Uh, there, I think there's a tendency to to feel like you have a chip on your shoulder about it, right? Like. I, I like this, I was bullied for this, and now this is big, and you have to like it, and if you don't like it, I'm going to try to bully you. Now, in terms of human psychology, I think that's fairly normal, right? right? Like, yeah. there's always, Everyone always wants to sort of put down the people who they perceive as being beneath them in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just this kind of changing of the guard. But I, I, think, I think with the Marvel stuff, or when you look at pop culture specifically these days, I think it's because there's a feeling that like the nerds have won, right? Mm. Uh, and and the jocks and the people you know 
who watch sports ball and whatever, uh, they are now the losers or something like that. Right. Um, of the, course, I, that argument itself is ridiculous. You don't look at Chris Hemsworth and say, wow, what a geek. Well, that's know? the thing. That is the thing, ultimately. The, 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 the things that it's cashing in on, those movies tend to cash in on these sort of like fascistic conservative things that, that, that aren't really at all cool in any context of uh, historically, at least, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's almost like that goes totally by their, by the heads of the, the, the kind of fan that you're talking about. It goes by their heads just because there's almost this like childhood, little boy, infantile connection to the things that is almost nostalgic. And thus, as people tend to be with traditions, they get very angry when you start to sort of nuke them in any way at all, you know? What? Well, I talk about this in, in the book a bit where it's like uh, fandoms have become almost identity groups now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, per- perhaps in a way that was always the case, you know, like w- whether you like jazz music or a certain football team. But it's like it's this idea where it's like if I don't like Doctor Strange – then that is a personal insult to you as someone who likes Doctor Strange, uh, which I don't understand. It's like, you know, I get this perception among people. It's like, oh, I don't like anything. I mean, that's not true. I'm excited for the new Bond movie. Yeah. You know, I watch Vanderpump Rules every week, like right. every slob on planet Earth. <laughs> uh, but, if, you know, if someone were to make fun of it, if I thought I had a defensible position, I might defend it. But I'm not going to be like, this person is attacking me well, in my life. Yes, or that is like that. that is a that is that is one of them. When you sort of scratch and scratch and scratch, that is ultimately, I think, what I get down to as well. Where I think now I'm going to reverse it and just do the thought experiment of what if what if someone was hating to use the word hating on something that that I hold dear and love, and the answer is I wouldn't give a fucking shit. I, I, I wouldn't have my feelings hurt in any way because I didn't make it. It doesn't belong to me. It's a thing that was made that I responded to and enjoyed. What the fuck do I care what someone else thinks at, at all to any degree, really? Now, if I'm going to engage in a debate-style argument or even just a conversation, as you said, sort of like at a party to be that person at the, at the party sort of holding holding against sort of the, 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 group or the, the larger group, uh, that is sort of... It just it's just a weird fucking thing that I can't relate to at its core. I can't relate to this thing of caring that someone doesn't like a product, ultimately a product that I do like. Do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, what if someone were to dislike, let's say you had like a, an art film or like an album that was very dear to your heart. You know what I mean? Like, I, I agree. Like, it, it feels easier when these things are at like the highest levels of the cultural superstructure. But it's like... It, in in a certain way, I'm, I'm sensitive to it because, okay, let's say to take a, a big example of uh, a band I like that everyone makes fun of, which would be the Grateful Dead, right? Mm. I, I know that it's just fucking dumb guitar solos. Mm-hmm. And if you're not stoned or if you're not into it, it just sounds like shit. Mm. You know, I get all that. But when people make those arguments, I still get that itch. I'm like, well, actually, what you don't understand, you know what I mean? Yes. Like I, I feel some sort of need to want to defend it. Uh, and, you know, not to be one of those purple people who goes around trying to, like, dead pill people and right. make, make everyone into a deadhead or whatever. Um, but, I, but I understand something of that instinct, again, at the level of, like, personal conversation. Right, right, like, yeah. I was like, I, I really like the movie X, and someone's like, that sucks. I mean, well, that's a jumping off point for a conversation. Yes. But like you say, on, on social media, this idea of, like, you know, targeting people and, 
just kind of going after people with that mob mentality. I mean, that I don't get. I mean, yeah. and it reflects what happens in politics now all the time too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you experienced a bit of that with with Jordan Peterson. Actually, you mentioned him earlier. Didn't I? Mean I I I I've read. I think in the in the Toronto Sun was it uh, a review of his book uh, Twelve Rules for Life, right? That that was you reviewed that. Uh, yeah, the, the Globe and Mail was. The yeah, newspaper. Globe and Mail. Okay, yeah, yeah. The Toronto newspaper. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and 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 I I don't know where I heard you say this, but I heard you talk a bit about. Um, sort of getting getting heat from and i can't imagine really what this is like getting heat from his fans must be like i don't know i i can't they must the 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 righteousness that you must have (laughs) have been on the other side of must have been epic am i wrong about that well no no i mean first of all i did get under my skin a bit like you know there was there was a lot of people who I got a lot of response to that review or that essay about him or whatever. You know, he puts it out on his Twitter. He tweets my webpage with my email address and all this. It feels very targeted. Right. Uh, now, I should say for the record, you know, I'm six feet tall, 235 pounds. I just benched 315 this morning. So I'm generally unafraid. Sure. That sounds like such a jock dickhead thing to say. <laughs> but I'm, I'm generally unafraid if people are like, I'm going to come around and kick your ass. Sure, it's yeah. Like, it's like okay, like go for it. No yeah. one ever does, obviously, right? But right. There's you no. Know, there's a level of venom in people being like, you know, I won't even repeat the sort of like homophobic slurs and stuff like that. Right. But being like, this guy fixed my life. You blank, blank, yeah. blank, blank, blank. And it's like, yeah, you sound fucking super together, dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, and, and at the same time, though, I get emails, like positive emails from people who were like, you know, my son was into his stuff. and I, I, I watched some of it and thought that he shouldn't be watching it. Like, thank you for helping me understand what this guy is about. I got emails from people who are on the fence being like, well, what is really wrong with what he's saying? And what is the negative aspect? And I've tried to have conversations with those people. But yeah, with someone like that, where the whole thing is like, I'm helping people get their lives together. Mm-hmm. And then they email you and they seem like the most deranged people on planet Earth. Right. Like, literally trying to set up a time and place to get in a fist fight with yeah. me. One guy gave me his address, and I was going to go over there, but then I Googled it. It was just an empty field in rural Ontario. <laughs> Maybe he was just laying <laughs> in that field waiting for you, waiting for your arrival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, meet me under the big net in the park. Yeah, uh, that that is uh, that is very incongruous to 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 be literally saying this guy made me change my life, he saved my life, whatever. And then in in the con in it, the vehicle of that sentiment is an angry tweet threatening to, to trying to, to challenging you to a fist fight is 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 actually perfectly uh, incongruent in, uh, and and sort of exposes it, it sort of a, a lot without even having to say more about it. It's just so fucking clear what's what sort of what's sort of just underneath that surface, you know. And I, and I mean, again, I I'm lucky in the sense that like most of this is like water off a duck's back to me, right? Like I, you know, the the way that people like that go after like women and gay men and stuff like that, or like let alone trans people, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. So like even the taste of it, I've got, I've like okay, whatever. I mean, it did kind of like I did kind of lose my mind about it at one point because right. it just doesn't stop. What's the point of even trying to be a good person when you have people out there who are like mobilizing the most like venomous instincts in people? And you know, whatever Jordan Peterson's function in helping men fix their posture, clean their room, uh, whatever. That doesn't even interest me. What interests me is that he's like an intellectual hack. Right. That he's stupid. And that he writes these books as if he's a philosopher, but you read them and it's like fucking chicken soup for the moron soul. Like, <laughs> like that is like, he did that debate with Slavoj Zizek 
who just mopped the floor with Peterson. Yeah, I saw some and of like, that, the, yeah. The idea that he could go toe-to-toe with someone who is an actual philosopher, it's like, it's, it's that idea, right, that you take someone who, you know, maybe you like him because of his stance on, on pronouns, mm-hmm. maybe you like him because he gives practical advice about taking ownership of your own life, mm-hmm. but the idea that he's some intellectual, world-historical intellectual titan or some sort of guru, again, it's that same sort of slavish cultish mm-hmm. mentality yeah um yeah i don't get it yeah fuck that guy. yeah although he's very sick i shouldn't say fuck that guy true he is sick isn't from, he yeah <laughs> benzedrine addiction which i don't wish on anyone yeah totally same yeah uh, it is and it, it, again it this sort of i mean at, at at that time i think when was that when that all went down like what what year was this last year the year before yeah that would have been oh geez yeah i guess around last 2018 into 2019 so this was like when he was probably at his zenith at his most successful as in to, to, which is to say why like why bother like it's one fucking bad quote unquote bad review or, or essay about uh his unbelievably successful book a why does he even give a shit and b like what is the what is this this thing about but the the punching downness of it. Not to say that you're down with your opinion or anything, but you are you are in the minority, let's say. And it's the same yeah. thing with the Marvel groupthink thing. It's like, why do you care about this one dissenting opinion that doesn't affect its success or its proliferation at all? Yeah, I mean, I I think with with Peterson specifically, it's almost that like you know people say he's a father figure and all like mm. and all that. It'd be, it'd be like for many people, I feel like that's literally true. It'd be like someone shitting on your dad. Yeah. And the other thing is like the people who come to someone like that, they've had no encounter with the entire history of ideas or with like anything like intellectualism or philosophy or psychology or anything like that. So when you're like someone like me or someone who's reviewing that book and being like, well, this is just kind of a dog's breakfast of, of random ideas that he attempts to bring together. People could say the same thing about my book, to be honest, but I, I can understand how that would be that would be offensive. Like this person ch- changed my life and you're saying they're actually dumb and they suck. Right. Uh, like I could, I could see how that might reflect on people, but I would hope that it reflects on people in a way where it's like, well, maybe I should consider this person or consider the effect they're having on me or the effect they have on other people. Not, I'm going to find a guy's email from his website and email him threatening to kick his ass. Right. And then when he takes me up on it, having to reveal that I live in Miami, right, right. Uh, <laughs> which happened to me at one point. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like, like I say, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's the act of, of criticism. It's, it's the way that people take it personally or something. Yes. Yes. And do you think, um, I, I'm curious as to what do you think that that is is sort of fueled or at least aided by this fact that we're sort of when we are online, when we are on social media or really Google or anything, Facebook doesn't fucking matter. If you you're generally just because of the nature of what you're doing, you're generally just and aided by the algorithm as well, algorithms as well. You're just seeing think more and more of things that you're probably going to like and and agree with and and is it possible that that people in general are just sort of less primed to handle dissenting opinion as in dissenting from what they think not dissent from even just the popular thought but like i feel like anyone sitting at their computer for a large part of the day 
his, in the in the context of history, is generally seeing and encountering more quote evidence of things that they agree with or that the world mirrors themselves than ever before. Is that do you do you think that that's playing any part or like that the yes. bubble that we're in? You know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, bubbles and silos and all these analogies come up. And in in Hater, I write about that idea that you're describing of like you. There's the accord, like the general sense of getting along with everyone, right. whether it's everyone, everyone, or everyone in your bubble. Yeah. And then there's the sense that like you have this coherent idea of yourself, and this is who I am, and this is what I believe, and anything that sort of challenges or undermines that becomes a big problem, right? Yeah. Now, I'm I'm personally of the opinion where I think it's like it's part of human nature that we have to live in contradiction that we're going to say things and do other things that we're going to feel one way about something one minute and then another way about the next and that there's a certain wisdom to kind of embracing that paradoxicality yes. Parado- i don't know uh but i'm aware that a lot of people are not like that yeah. now as far as like is this worse because of social media i think there are are i'm of two minds about it like i say i'm of two minds about many things yes uh on the one hand People have always disagreed, right? But when people talk about the fact that it's like, oh, back in the day, you know, my next door neighbor could vote for Reagan, uh, and he and I could still get along and have a barbecue and blah, 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 and stuff like that. Now, I don't know that that happens so much anymore, but it also has to do with the fact that politics themselves and culture itself is getting more polarized. It's not just our reactions to it and the way that we feel like we possess it, mm. you know? Like, if, if, it's like the Curb Your Enthusiasm, recent Curb Your Enthusiasm episode about Trump supporters, right? Yeah. Where it's like, if you find out that someone's a Trump supporter, it's not just like, oh, their political views are slightly different than mine. It's like it casts an aspersion on their entire character, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, And, and in, a, in, a, in a way, I can understand that. So the idea is not just like, well, I'm this way, I'm a little bit country, and you're a little bit rock and roll, and never the twain shall meet or whatever. It's that the differences between the things that we value have actually become further apart. Mm, um, yeah. So, so there's there's the real world chasm, and there's the way that we sort of organize into bubbles. The way that everything has to be about the culture war these days, which is so fucking exhausting. Mm. It's like Jor- Jordan Peterson again is another good example. He is useful to people because he is a useful figure in this sort of culture war that says that we shouldn't have to think about trans issues, that men are men and women are women, that there are traditional gender roles and blah, 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 blah. People don't care about his reading of Nietzsche or whatever. They care about him because he is seen as a kind of general in this larger culture war. So even the way that people say that they like things or the things that they value has become so disingenuous. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I say, the the problem is that things, things feel further apart than ever. And I think in a way they also are further apart than ever. Like, it's not like I can just say, okay, I'm not going to live in my bubble anymore. And it would be imagined and I could break free of it. And that would be that there would be real gulfs and distances between people that would be hard, hard to reconcile. Yeah. That's really interesting actually. Cause I mean, I think the common refrain that, that we tend to hear is that it's sort of the internet's doing or social media is doing that is driving this wedge between people. But I think, I think what you're saying is, and I, and I think I agree is this sort of all it's doing is revealing the chasm more than anything else. Of course it's contributing, but it, but it's, it's sort of revealing the thing you're talking about, not creating out of, out of nothingness or just simply by simply existing and being what it is. I don't think, I don't think people are that malleable that quickly. You know, I think that what it's doing is showing us 
wow, we are fucking so far and we're down our lanes so deep that it's hard to even know that a other lanes exist and when you're exposed to them by sort of the aided by the internet or social media whatever that sort of creates what looks like the internet's doing when in reality it's just the internet showing us you know yeah i i think since the sort of widespread use of the internet it's you know it's a tool it's like anything right but part of its tool is amplification and part of that amplification can be like well you know it it brings the world closer together like i remember when i was a kid the dream of the internet was like I'm playing chess with my friend in China. Yeah. Like that was like the novelty of the internet, yeah. you know? Uh, but now that amplification has to do with, you know, it can amplify the, uh, the tensions between people. Uh, it can amplify the sense that we're, we're part of some imagined community. So, yeah, I, I, like I say, I don't think it's it's necessarily creating everything. It's maybe ratcheting it up a bit. Right. And of course, especially on social media, that sense of anonymity, and not even anonymity, but like even if you're someone like me who has a pseudo profile and a, a blue check mark beside their name or whatever, uh, it, it's still like if I was on TV having a debate with someone, you know, I wouldn't tell them to go fuck themselves or whatever necessarily right. to their face. But on Twitter, that's a non-issue. But the other thing about it is like, you know, you mentioned how, oh, we're coming into contact or we might see ideas that we've never seen before and we're afraid of that. I, I don't know how true that is. I mean, you look at people who are subject, subjected to sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia. It's not like they've never been subjected to those things before. Mm-hmm. They've probably been subjected to them constantly mm-hmm. throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, you know, going on social media is a way of finding your community or creating a, a sort of community or a bubble in a positive sense. Right. So when someone comes into that space and starts essentially, you know, questioning everything about your existence yeah. and about who you are, I get why that's annoying. You sure, know? Yeah. It, it, it's not just like this sort of, Oh, I'm, I'm some Lily white and I'm, I've been triggered because someone said a homophobic slur to me. Right. It's like, no, like, fuck you. I'm sick of this. I have an ability to curate it out of my feet or right. whatever. So, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to talk, a bit about I'm in the I'm in the film industry, so I I I'm I I I'm very sort of drawn to your ideas about that kind of shit. And you talk a bit about uh, sort of, um, I think the term you do you use the t- I think you use the term calcified consensus, perhaps in in, in your yeah in your book yeah. yeah. And I, I can you just sort of define what you mean by that because because that this is like a fucking enormous thing for me but uh, but i i would love to hear like sort of where how you define that and, and what that means to you yeah so by calcified i guess i just mean that it becomes the consensus becomes a point of agreement to the point that it cannot be ruptured mm-hmm. right uh you know when i think of calcium i think of like a kidney stone right uh quite deliberately because it's very hard and unyielding and also very annoying um Well, I think that historically, the way that any progress is made, you know, whether it's introducing a new idea, whether it's thinking about things a different way, whether it's political change, comes not from that consensus, but from another idea I discussed towards the end called dissensus, which is the idea that we should always be paying attention to the things that stand outside of the consensus. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that consensus in certain ways it ties into that idea of like, well, we all want to be part of a community and have 
quote the correct opinions and also that we want to feel like comfortable with ourselves and who we are you know yeah uh but when it becomes calcified it's that idea that like nothing can rupture it from the outside and that of course is is when it becomes dangerous right yeah this sort of unthinking uh uh agreement it it, it, it seems particularly and again i think this is because I'm I'm in this industry, but perhaps not. I mean, this idea, this consensus criticism thing that you talk about a bit, you know, the Rotten Tomatoes right. shit. It, it, this is something I think about like so, so, so much. I mean, I'm I'm faced with it very, very often. Uh, I, I, it fucking drives me crazy. This shit, Rotten Tomatoes in particular. Yeah, yeah. Rot- well, Rotten Tomatoes gets a lot of heat in my book because it's it's that idea that we don't care about one person's opinion, right? We care about what the percentage opinion is uh that is the signal of something's quality and that i think is a new change like you know we have that sort of notion of aggregation and algorithms you know in toronto here the biggest newspaper the toronto star they just cut their entertainment section Mm. and all the film reviews are coming from the washington post and the chicago tribune and it's no diss on those writers but for a lot of people it sounds quaint or something, but you grow up, you have a personal relationship with people who write these things in a newspaper yeah. or an imagined personal relationship. Or right, it's like, right. well, I know how Peter Howell or Jeff Pavere or whomever think. So if they say that this thing is good, maybe I'll like it. If they say it sucks, maybe I'll give it a skip. But this idea that we should all be going to see, you know, Spider-Man far from home because it's 93% fresh that doesn't tell me anything. Yeah. You know, it doesn't tell me anything of substance. It just says that, 93% of people thought that this film was better than not watchable. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so from a critical perspective, I think it has, it has a deleterious effect, right? I mean, you used to get at least Siskel and Ebert on a poster saying two thumbs up, two thumbs down. And now all we get is like a tomato with a percentage. Right. The one, the one tomato. Yeah. I mean, I, I the, something uh, that, that, that it, it doesn't, it, it it's not a, indicative of whether it's good. And I think you actually say this in the book. It's not indicative of whether it's good. It's indicative of whether it's good enough. And good yes. enough, actually, in my opinion, and I, it shouldn't be a thing when it comes to anything in the arts. Good enough is nothing. Good enough is actually bad in a lot of ways. And if yes. you a- are just aggregating and just showing me the, the general, the literally the average of what somebody that works at Rotten Tomatoes decided what was generally good and what was generally bad. Because by the way, just to add, sometimes in generally, this is true of good reviews and good criticism, it can be hard to tell if the reviewer likes or dislikes the film. It's not even a fucking about that, ideally. You know, it's about, criticism is its own thing. Criticism is not just, I liked that. I liked these parts. I didn't like that part. It's not that, you know what I mean? I've certainly found myself in that position because, you know, sometimes I'll write longer essays that aren't like graded reviews uh, that I'll go on tomato meter and be like, oh, you gave this a fresh. And I'm like, what? No, I didn't. Right. I mean, right. I like this movie. <laughs> uh, but, you know, maybe that's a sign of a failure on my part to be able to express my distaste for something or just like their algorithm scans it for whatever words and say that it's good. But yeah, I think I offer some sort of like, uh, thought experiment might sound a bit grandiose but you know the idea that like a perfect movie in the world of rotten tomatoes is like a movie that everyone would give 2.5 out of 4 to 
Yeah. You know, like the kind of movies that as a film reviewer are impossible to review because it's like, yeah, I don't know, some parts were good and some parts sucked. But there's something to be said, like, you know, this is why people find thumbs up, thumbs down and all that kind of reductive. And I agree. But, you know, I, I've been to a couple of film festivals in my life. And when you see a movie in that context, where you're seeing stuff all the time and it's this kind of relentless gauntlet, there's a tendency for everything to either be like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life mm. or this was an unredeemable piece of shit. Right. Uh, but that rubric almost makes more sense to me than being like yeah i don't know for a fan of this kind of thing maybe there's something you could enjoy right it's like who cares like either you're endorsing that something is new and interesting or works or it's terrible you know like right it 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 becomes increasingly hard for me to even conceive of the use of a middle ground and i mean maybe that's just a writerly thing right like who wants to read a two-star review of something it's so boring well it's this Uh, it's it's it 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 speaks to my mind just even as a as a viewer or reader as an audience member really i i, I don't want to I, I don't even want to see things that will not move my needle one way or the other i'd always always rather watch something that is extreme one way or the other and people pe- or rather that people tend to have extreme opinions about because just the general idea of this like boring lazy sort of like is it sort of generally good thing is is it's it's it seems like the the actual antithesis of what uh anything in the arts should 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 be up to or should be about you know yeah no i agree and i mean i was actually thinking about this earlier today i'm working on a review of this uh, German film that just came out and I, I went to the screening a few weeks ago and you know it's a it's a slow moving cryptic mannered German art film mm-hmm. you know but even coming out of the theater with that kind of audience you see a similar split or over here a similar split mm-hmm. where it's either and you know not to say that all these people are operating in bad faith it's just stuff that I overheard and overheard and amused me where you know people are like oh what was that that was nothing I yeah, didn't get yeah. that yeah. or the other people where it's like you know, when Homer Simpson's watching Twin Peaks, it's like <laughs> brilliant. I have no idea what's going on. You know? <laughs> uh, where, where there's this tendency to sort of, you know, sort yourself into one camp or the other. You know, right? Um, and it, you know, it doesn't just happen with Marvel movies. Like I'm saying, it happens with sort of like esoteric, ambitious cinema. So, I mean, maybe it is just kind of a human instinct, but yeah, I. I I'm not sure. I mean, I think the job of a, a critic or a writer or someone who's thinking through these things is to try to cut through that a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just generally, though, do you think the criticism, ha- and particularly in this context, film criticism, do you think it's been... What What are the effects of something as enormous as an ag- uh, like a, uh, a review aggregator site like like Rotten Tomatoes? How does that affect the actual industry and thus affect the what we're getting from ostensibly getting from each individual review because what i find is that no one's actually reading the reviews anymore and i'm assuming critics critics tend to know that and they're sort of leaning into what in whatever way i don't know what way but but the, the, it must affect the actual approach to the review in the first place when rotten tomatoes is this sort of titan titanic thing that is everyone is going to go to you know yeah i mean i think there there have always been good film critics and there have always been bad film critics right i mean i think that the rise of this sort of internet for lack of a better word nerd culture Mm -hmm. uh has created a certain class of 
fanboy slash critic yes uh that i don't have a lot of use for personally i mean and you know there's always been people who want a job as an arts journalist or whatever so that they can meet celebrities and imagine that they're friends with them because they've spoken to them on a 12 minute junket or whatever those people have sucked since the dawn of time (laughs) you know (laughs) Uh, and they will continue (laughs) to suck uh, but I think I think that perhaps that percentage of suckage has increased over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's telling, like I say, that you have newspapers that are totally just gutting the sections where people try to write thoughtfully and competently about the arts because people can just look at the tomato meter score and that could be that. Yeah. You know, I'm not exactly going to pull out a string section for the end of professionalized film criticism which has always kind of been a hobby of the idle rich uh but i think that i think that it does give readers and people interested in this thing less information uh it gives them less ability to try to make intelligent choices uh or to try to make choices that are either consistent with their taste or to try to expand that taste now at the same time through being online i found all kinds of arts writers and critics and stuff who write with a crazy high level of intelligence and thoughtfulness that I would have had no idea. I would like, you know, not be subscribing to film comment or something when I was in high school and like had no way to access these things. So, you know, again, everything sort of cuts both ways, but I do think, I do think that the negative aspects are outweighing the positive aspects because, you know, these esoteric publications where people write, you know, long form, thoughtful essays in art forum you know that's a rarefied gig and it's not like the people doing it can make a living which means that invariably they'll get kind of shuttled out of it or right. the publications themselves will collapse um so yeah i don't know maybe we're in the twilight of people caring about arts criticism and this stuff or maybe people will always care about it and the publications people will turn to will just become kind of like I say, rare and esoteric. Yeah, which would frankly be fine with me. Right. I mean, the. I mean, I'd rather it become niche, even extremely niche, than just actually go away as a thing. And I think what you're saying is true. I mean, as things have sort of settled, and this has become clear that what Rotten Tomatoes is, and sort of the negative effects of it. I think it's not that the more things have popped up that are sort of uh, for um, a more sort of critical mind of these things, but they have become. I think uh, much more necessary and the people that care about those things are sort of have found them are more likely to have found them by now. And they can sort of lean on that instead of, you know, the, the typical sort of, well, well, what's Rotten Tomatoes say, you know, uh, that kind of shit. I, 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 the one movie I direct, I'm a writer, a film writer. And, and, and the one movie I actually, that I have produced that I also, I also directed it. And it's this, and it's, it's called American animals. Very like, I knew going in, it was like a wild thing that people were either going to love or hate. And I, and I enjoyed that. I was excited about that because it was like, that's the kind of shit I like. And, and, and then I made it and then that was true. And I was like, what the fuck did I do? This is such an extreme experience. People are either loving or hating this. And now that is a, that now that it's real and in the world, it's a man, it's an, it's a reflection of me on me. And I'm sort of, feeling it. And the more I paid attention to it, the more it would affect me. And so I had to just totally stop reading the reviews, you know? And recently <laughs> I, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes, what American Animal was on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's literally exactly 
and it 60 being the sort of mark for freshness and and anything below that being being rotten and it it being right there in, with all of like my my feelings about rotten tomatoes and 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 the experience of making something like that it seemed like the absolute perfect rating and and i think even i guess where i'm going with this is that I'm I'm concerned and 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 I'm curious as to know what you think. I'm concerned that almost this awareness of this this force of what Rotten Tomatoes is 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 sort of it's this oppressive thing where it's it's binary. It's either fresh or rotten. And I think that that even even at its inception sort of has this effect for artists or would be artists to lean a certain way and to lean into this sort of middle which is like at least it'll as you say at least it'll be a 2.5 and it won't i won't risk the fucking rottenness of it the perceived rottenness of it if that makes sense yeah i mean i I, that's something that i i think i talk about a bit in the book when i'm talking about rotten tomatoes but it's like it's not okay whatever this is annoying film critics will lose their job blah 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 it's not the biggest tragedy in the history of mankind with respect to film critics who have lost their jobs. Sure. Uh, but it's like, what effect does this have on the industry itself? Yes, yes. You know? And again, I think the Marvel movies provide the sort of penultimate example where it's like they have devised this formula of how to make perfectly satisfying CGI action blockbusters that make a billion dollars a piece that all do, you know, fairly well critically, that will all be certified fresh. You know, yeah. that that creates a sort of, uh, again, a calcification where there's no desire to take risks. You know, they bring on directors. They always do this thing at Marvel where they'll bring on a director who has made like an indie that people liked. And then there's always this excitement. like, Oh, they're going to be making a Marvel movie. Yeah. But it never happens that the distinctiveness of their artistic personality is ever on display in those movies it's like sandblasted out of existence yes you know so this is the thing it's like you you create these sort of this world of perfect bland mediocrity because people find it acceptable and then i think the worry in the long term is that people only know how to be fervent and passionate about the mediocre tastes yeah. uh you know they're again the the sort of fanboy reactions and that it's not a sort of passion to want something better or to want something different um so i think that's what becomes a big problem is where you know and you see like netflix and i mean netflix has taken some chances on real films and real filmmakers but when they when they devised house of cards one of their first big shows right yeah you know not like the show was literally written by an algorithm or something like that but they looked at the kind of shows that people watch the kind mm. of atmosphere and they made a show based on it um so i think when you get into that realm you're talking about the complete gutting of the idea of artistry yes uh which i don't think is that contrarian or haterish of an opinion to say that it's bad to have no artistry right yeah i mean it's this it's this it's this almost uh perpetual stamping out i mean i i I, john watts the director of some of the newer spider-man movies is is an interesting example for me because he made cop car and i was really excited about that movie and i liked it a lot and then immediately to leap into this massive franchise thing it's like couldn't you have done like couldn't that have been like process have at least been stretched out a little bit you know like like let like let it (laughs) breathe maybe make two more cool fucking things and then go do the fucking massive enormous franchise thing but it's almost like 
it's almost like now interesting, cool, new voices in the medium. It's almost like just a tryout for bigger, shittier things, which I find actually disturbing because literally that that actually directly affects me, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and of course, the other point is, you know, these guys are probably getting, I don't know what, eight or ten million dollars totally. to make a movie like this totally. yeah, nothing to sneeze at but you know i think about ryan coogler right who made yeah. station yes and then they're like okay let's get this guy to direct creed aka rocky seven and i was like uh, i don't know about this but yeah. creed was awesome it was a great movie right uh and then it's like okay then ryan coogler is going to go do black panther and it's like okay well you're kind of just doubling down on this franchise thing again i think black panther better than the bulk of the marvel movies right but yeah it's it's that idea that oh, you're being given an opportunity, but really you're kind of being removed from a system where you can make any sort of films that might pose a threat to the tyranny and hegemony of these franchises at the box office. Yeah. Now, the one guy who calls to mind comes to mind as an exception is uh, Taika Watiti, although I hate that Jojo Rabbit movie. Me I thought too. It was like, like morally indefensible and cheap and, you know, I hated it. Um, anyways, but he was, he was able to sort of leverage his success from making Thor Ragnarok or whatever, uh, to go make this personal movie right. that ended up being, doing very well. Uh, now again, his toolkit as an artist is not quite my cup of tea. Sure. I was going to say cup twee, but that would be too <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's just a matter of taste. But yeah, for the most part, I think these people, like Chloe Zhao, who made the film The Rider, which was this really affecting indie about a native cowboy living uh, on a reserve community. She's this Chinese-American filmmaker. Then she gets the big paycheck to make the, I don't know, whatever the Marvel movie with Camille Najami coming out is. Mm. Uh, will she ever make another indie like The Rider again? I, I mean, I hope so, but yeah. I don't really see it happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, just on the heels of you bringing up Jojo Rabbit, I, I have a specific thing with that movie, actually. And it's the fact that, well, I, I mean, the actual movie itself is its own specific thing that I have a problem with. Speaking of Twee, it's like so unbelievably Twee, it's painful for me. But but the the, the marketing of the movie, calling a movie oh, anti-hate satire. Anti -hate satire is the biggest fucking bullshit I've seen in the last count in the last year. It is, it's fucking, it's, it's like, it's genuinely like, it, that hurts my fucking brain to think that, yeah. that, that that's something that you could think is a fucking good idea and put on your poster out of absolute fear of, if you're going to make the fucking movie, just make the movie. You don't have to let us know that a satire is there to, 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 to be anti-hate. We fucking know that. That's what satire is. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean. Yeah, exactly. Like, you would never see RoboCop, an anti-police state satire. Yeah. You know? Uh, you know, part of that's just marketing, but I agree that it's like, uh, I mean, it reflects a certain gutlessness in the film itself, I think, which totally. is like, we, d we don't trust the audience enough to get this, so we're going to tell them what it is. And I think that, you know, like I say, that... That toothlessness is so consistent with the approach of that movie that yeah. it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it speaks to the way that audiences are uh, 
taken as being stupid yes. and as being saps. Uh, and if we're going to give you something like this, like, oh my gosh, this guy's dressing up and playing a goofy Hitler. Oh, it's okay. It's actually a movie for someone like me who uh, doesn't like hate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the most like fatuous pose imaginable. It really is. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know how to break out of that. Like in, in my writing, I, I'm always trying to think about how to make readers think about things differently or how to make them more intelligent or how to make them examine their values with things. Uh, but, you know, who the fuck am I? Right. I don't a, a movie studio that relies on the idea of people being saps and people just, you know, being the bottom line on, you know, Bob Iger's paychecks and stuff <laughs> I, I i find myself conflicted about this it's like the chicken or the egg thing i don't know what i think in the about this specific thing and it's when you said something about you know the the, the anti-hate satire it's like it's assuming that everyone is a fucking moron and won't understand that this movie actually is a is is anti-hate in its in it's inherently that because we're not making a fucking movie about hitler and how fucking great he was but I mean that then they don't trust the audience to understand that. So they have to literally on the poster say anti-hate satire. I don't know if I think that audience general audiences uh, are, 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 are dumb. And, and, and that is a reflect the, the sort of like the, the industry is sort of reflecting that, or if that is just the assumption and and it's this sort of deeply insidious assumption that perpetuates its truth just by simply sort of being enacted by the studio system. Right. So so studios treat audiences like saps because they are saps. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, okay. In my darkest hour, uh, I might think that too in a way, but I also think that, you know, the human capacity for intelligence and for sensitivity and for understanding complex ideas is vast and should never be discounted right yes. the problem is joe schmo film goer has to go against not just you know the marketing of one or another film or one studio's prerogatives to play to the bottom line to make money but a whole ideology right and a whole culture that is designed to make us feel a little stupid to you know it's like a show that i don't really like that much but i think was good at exploring this one point was mad men right yeah because essentially the point of mad men at least in the early seasons before it gets into you know the complex dramas of the characters is this idea that you're not you're not satisfying a customer's inherent desire you're creating that desire right you're telling people what they want and then giving it to them. right like that, that is how our culture works on a huge scale i mean that is something that is, people have been trying to parse in books and philosophy and economics for the better part of a century right yeah. and that is a very 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 big and vast and complicated thing that is hard for people to even recognize let alone oppose right mm -hmm. i mean I, I use the analogy in the book a few times of the sunglasses from that John Carpenter movie, they live yeah, right? yeah. where Rowdy Roddy Piper puts on the sunglasses. And all of a sudden you see that, Oh, this billboard telling me to go on holiday. It just says obey or, you know, this Coca-Cola right. can says marry and reproduce. Right. You know, that, that movie, it's a very maybe crude allegory, but it's nonetheless true. Right. Yes, and I yes. think that like good writing and good criticism can essentially give people those magical sunglasses that allow you to demystify these things. Yeah. That's but again, good. when the when the structures are so big and so vast, it's not necessarily an intuitive thing, yeah. right? To be like, 
you know, maybe I'm being made to taken for a fool here and maybe there's something better out there. You know, let's face it. Most people work 50, 60 hours a week. Yeah. They don't give a shit. You want to go watch a movie or watch six hours of love is blind on Netflix. You don't want your brain to be tickled. You want it to be like deactivated. Yes. Uh, so there's, there's certainly plenty of options for people, uh, if that's the case. Yeah, that, that is true. And I think, you know, that there's something just sort of ground level, whether we like it or not as artists, truth that you, that it really isn't good or bad. It is just gonna be and is, and is hard to even argue with, which is exactly what you said is that often many people who don't really give a shit on like a deeper level about the arts in general, are, they just want to turn something on and and actually have their brain go off, you know? Uh, but, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I noticed actually that when you do that, when you try to sort of go to people in that way, which I've tried to do in reviews sometimes, they get very annoyed by it. Like, yeah. I remember I reviewed the new uh, Tim Burton Dumbo for a newspaper here. And, you know, that was a movie where it was all about how Large corporations are insidious. It should all be about the sort of uh, values of the independent artisans. And, you know, it's a $250 million Disney movie. Yes. So I basically just like articulated that irony about how like this movie is selling you a lesson that it itself does not believe in. Right. Uh, and that by going to see it, you are partaking in a culture that perpetuates the opposite of the lesson that the movie is presenting. Yeah. And, you know, all these, all these people in the comments just being like, oh, pipe down. I just want to know if I can bring my kids to this. Wow. And it's like, I can, I can tell stuff like that, that you're, at, you're actually getting under people's skin. Right. Cause again, no one would log on to the website of newspaper, create a profile, post a comment just to be like, Hey, who cares about this claptrap? I just want to turn my brain off, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, you you must care in some sense because I'm essentially saying if you're going to this movie, you're a sucker. Uh, and this this you're you're being treated like how the evil corporation in the movie treats people. And I think that that awareness that maybe you're a sap or a mark or a pigeon or whatever, people don't like hearing it, right? Yeah. I mean, being told that everything you believe in is a total fleece and that you just exist so that your pocketbooks can be drained so that the guy who owns Mickey Mouse can buy a third swimming pool. Yeah. That's not a comfortable truth. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I find when people get their backs up about it, it's a sign of like doing something right. Yeah. Because they're actually to feel afflicted by that reality is the first step in being like, well, maybe there's something else I can do. Totally, you know? totally, totally. And that's, that, that's super fucking interesting. And that makes me think of something that I think about a lot. I, I see a lot is this sort of, slow roll of the co-opting of the counterculture sort of ideas of the 60s and 70s that are now all in the biggest corporate th things that you could possibly imagine this sort of like be yourself fuck the man like all this all these kinds of like classic uh uh fuck you things of the counterculture are now just sort of like core pieces of the most massive corporate products you know what i mean it's almost like we're being sold now this idea i mean it's almost like you know adam curtis the filmmaker the documentarian sure, yeah it's yeah. just like Love that it. shit to me it's like I, I think about that where it's like it's all we're doing is being sold uh this sort of maximizing of ourselves and the self-expression but really it's not that it's just a fucking product that we're trying to buy and 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 it's almost like as you're saying i mean the dumbo thing it illustrates it almost 
exactly, which is like you're patronizing the the thing that the that the thing itself is telling you is bullshit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, another, well, okay, there's two examples I can think of to speak to this. You know, we're talking about Jojo Rabbit. When I wrote about Jojo Rabbit, I compared it unfavorably to Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, which is a movie that is essentially this like militaristic space sci-fi movie, pro-fascistic and everything. But then at the end says the viewer, if you enjoyed this, you're a fascist. Yes. Basically. And that is an uncomfortable truth, right? Yes. Jojo Rabbit doesn't come anywhere near that. It's saying, if you enjoyed this, then good for you because you're a liberal person who doesn't like intolerance. Yep. Uh, pat yourself on the fucking back. <laughs> um, but another thing I was thinking of, I, I've been working on some stories and I'm working on a big story right now about the, the resurgence of psychedelics in medicine and therapeutic trials uh-huh. uh, and how psychedelics, magic mushrooms, LSD and this stuff, uh, they're being treated with a new level of seriousness that has been unseen since they were outlawed in the sixties. Now, I find this very interesting because I think that they're very interesting compounds in a, in a clinical use. But there's also, again, as someone who loves uh, the fucking Grateful Dead and who like right. has a certain romance for the psychedelic 60s, despite, you know, the hollowness of the politics and stuff like that. There there does seem to be like a gentrification or something like that going on when you have, you know, investors putting in millions of dollars so that people can do magic mushrooms to help with anxiety and depression okay, it's hard to hate on, like, people getting well of course. feeling better. But it's also, it seems like it's draining that history and that sort of, like, revolutionary impulse or something. I mean, a drug like LSD, people used to do it to trip for 12 hours to expand their mind, to intuit some sort of larger metaphysical structure to the universe, to essentially get away from their role within the grinding capitalist ideology of the time. And now it's like, well, you can just microdose some LSD and you'll be a better computer programmer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you have these like, the, like these revolutionary, potentially revolutionary mind expanding drugs. And it's like, well, we'll just, you know, sell them over the counter like they're SSRIs. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think it's an interesting time, right? I mean, you, you see, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. There's been lots written about capitalist economics and the larger capitalist system we live in. But the thing about it that has been so frustrating is that capitalism can revolutionize faster than anything that opposes it. Right? Yeah. Because as soon as you put on that, you pay $20 for that Che Guevara t-shirt, Che Guevara has lost, right? Yes. Like everything becomes, as soon as it becomes a product, that energy or any potential that it has is totally drained. Yeah. Um, and it's a very uh, difficult problem to try to think your way out of. You know? It is. It really is. And I, I think, you know, for me, I, I always find myself going back to this. I mean, it's like a thought slash fear, I guess, where, you know, I, I, I've always associated counterculture and progressiveness or not just progressiveness in this not not in the political sense progressiveness but like you know a shaking up of things as as something uh, uh, affiliated with the, with the left you know uh yes. culturally not necessarily politically but just culturally you know and 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 now that that's sort of we're being it that's it, it's almost like that now that that counterculture of the left is gone there's like a vacuum and the only counterculture shit i see really now that's that's big and swelling and effective is like shitty troll culture which is which is generally right on the uh, uh, uh coming from the right you know 
Yeah, I mean, uh, an author, Angela Nagel, she had a book, Kill All Normies, that came out a few years ago that talks about the sort of resurgence of, you know, online trolling and, uh, you know, Gamergate and these sort of conservative anti-progressive movements. And the argument there, which is, again, not a new argument, but if uh, anyone hasn't heard it, it's new to them, is the idea that historically when the right controls the political sphere, the left controls culture, and they resent each other for that reason, right? Uh-huh. You know, when when George W. Bush was in power, you know, whatever, we have everything from Parks and Rec, you know, nine seasons of Parks and Rec right. means that we should be getting Hillary Clinton inevitably. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, vice versa, uh, when, when the left is in control, there's a tendency for the right to mm. control culture. Um, or sometimes it sort of coalesces, right? Like you have Reagan at the same time that you have uh, you know, Rambo movies, yeah. and these sort of conservative fantasies. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the thing about it is that the the right wing counterculture these days is like it's uh, it's uh, you can tell that they were leftists, right? Because like they've read the theory, they've read the history, <laughs> they know how to like get people to sort of follow along in their programs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, I do think that there still is a leftist progressive counterculture for lack of a better word but i also think that because of the nature of capital and the nature of the internet counterculture is way more unstable because as soon as any people know about anything it will become uncool yeah yeah Uh, so so that idea it's you you see it even in basic ways where it's like you know 10 15 years ago if you were going to a rave or underground party a friend would tell you about it now it goes up on facebook and the cops show up within two hours yeah Yeah. So it's just it's with with the access to information that we have these days, it's very hard to keep things secret and clandestine. Yeah, it's true. It's the the instant commodification of anything that's sort of counter or cool. It it sort of puts a perpetual onus on there to be a new thing that's actually counter to what isn't already being sold to us. And that is hard. Or it can can almost sort of like ease attention in a way where it's like, well, do I like this thing because I perceive it as being countercultural or because I perceive it as being cool or do I like it because it has an intrinsic value that appeals to me in one way or another, you know? Like I think if we move back this past this whole idea of, that the art and the culture we like is somehow going to oppose power structures, which like, I don't believe in a crude way. Right. Like right. it's not like the, pro- the progressive liberal movies I like can go into a ballot box and vote for Bernie Sanders or something. Right. Um, but I think when we move past that, then we can sort of start forming opinions and ideas about things that aren't just tied to that kind of reactionary impulse to be, is this cool? Is this not cool? Blah, 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 blah. Um, which itself might be an interesting moment. Yeah. Because, yeah, I agree I agree with you. Like, again, literally, as soon as something goes on Facebook, it's commodified. It becomes money in Mark Zuckerberg's pocket. Right. You know? uh, so it's it's hard to sort of keep anything underground. And, and Unless I'm just fucking not cool, and I don't know about all the underground shit, because right. nobody tells me about it anymore. It's certainly possible. I mean, uh, speaking of being siloed, yeah, it, 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 it does make one question, too, this idea of, like, you have to really sort of consider what you like, you know, because I agree this sort of like knee jerk. Well, that's not cool. Now everyone's doing it. Isn't good either. You know what I mean? Because, because if you like a thing, you should just actually just like it, whether everyone under the fucking sun likes it or zero people like it. 
You know what I mean? Right. And, and it, it can be hard when you're constantly being shown everyone who likes a thing or doesn't like a thing. And it, depending upon the pers- kind of person you are, that can either put pressure on you to seek out other things or like everything everyone says is liking. It, I think it, it puts the onus on the individual to really consider like, what do I actually like? And I don't, I don't see people doing that very much. You know, it could be because it's like a new issue facing us. It's like a new sort of, quote problem. But, but I, I, I don't see very often people step back and think, ah, do I even like that? And what do I like? You know, it's this constant barrage of things and you can just sort of pick them off. I like that. I like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. And, and it's almost like, you know, um, curating your feed, curating your own taste, uh, becomes the onus is like, it's on you. Cause you're getting this constant fucking barrage of shit, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I should say that in a number of ways, in any large number of ways, I'm very lucky because I often get paid to sit with my own thoughts yeah. and sort through this stuff and say, do, what do I like about this? What do I di- dislike about this? You know, usually if I leave a movie or if I listen to an album within the first two minutes or whatever, you know, I have a good sense of whether or not something's up my alley. Yeah. Right? But whether or not it's up my alley does not necessarily mean that it's any, any good. Or right, bad, right. Right. I mean, I think there's this other tendency where, especially culture writing i was talking about this with an editor today you know there's this tendency to to find any framework to justify your own taste Mm -hmm. right um so if you like something it must be good and therefore i'm going to find the reasons to tell you that it's good Uh, and and that i find like that's why you get all these like the hot take economy right where it's like well actually sex in the city is a fucking amazing show um (laughs) Now, I watch Sex in the City. I think it's funny. Whatever. Uh, having a take about Sex in the City for so uh, 30 years ago or something. Sure. But, you know, some, someone, I was talking to someone about reality TV where they're like, yeah, well, reality TV isn't shitty. Each episode, you know, it's like a soap opera. Like, yeah, and soap operas sucked at the time, too. <laughs> like, again, just because I watch Vanderpump Rules every week doesn't mean that it's good. Right. It just means that I am engaging in something that I find pleasurable but has no merit much like when I eat a fucking Wendy's hamburger or smoke a cigarette. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. This sort of, this sort of backing into explaining why a thing is good objectively because you like it. I, I, that's very, I don't think I've thought about it quite like that, but, but that is something that is rampant. I think actually, you know, because it's like, you don't have to justify anything, but also like, I think the sort of, it's it's on this sort of weird fault line of i think that the the it's 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 on the fault line of of what criticism really is in the first place it's like are is it there to just tell us what the person writing it likes i don't give a shit what some person likes you know i want the thing that sort of digs in and and and, and is the piece of criticism that is about the work that i can engage with myself you know what i mean but it, yeah. it also I, I i'm just me you know yeah exactly i mean yeah I, I think that it gets back to that idea of not wanting anything to break through that calcification right where it's like if i have to accept the fact that there's things that i like that are bad then that can totally destabilize my identity because I'm a good person, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I I mentioned Starship Troopers earlier. There was a lot of conversation online this week about, uh, Pasolini's movie, Sallow, you know, Mm. the old Italian art house movie where fascists abduct teenagers and sexually degrade them. I mean, when you talk about art like that, 
and I would even call Starship Troopers art in a way. When you look at the things where it's like they really get under your skin because you're watching it and it is making criticisms about you as a human being yeah. and it is saying maybe there's something inside of you that likes to watch these sort of parades of degradation. That is a very uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. But uncomfortable in a productive way, right? Like the, the idea of you know using sallow is such an arch example but you know watching something <laughs> i was like wondering where you were going with it just just at, when you mentioned it, i was like holy shit okay yeah no but like you know watching something like that being like you gross not for me right uh is is way less interesting than being like okay like what is this trying to say to me what is this trying to say about like the operations of human power about how people exploit the vulnerabilities of others you know the the things that make you feel like you're bad or that mm. you're a, you're a creep in some way i mean i think that those are the sort of unsettling feelings that are worth interrogating and worth embracing you know yeah i mean it's it sort of i think i think people be, out, with this out of hand rejection of things like that th those who do sort of reject that out of hand when they're faced with it i think what they're not allowing themselves to get past is this uh, is the fact that the the th the finger being pointed back at you it's it's not pointed back just at you this is about people this is not like uh, it's not showing you a fault of yours it's showing right. you something about humanity and that's all of us and that's what i mean ostensibly art is as at, at its best you know what i mean and and i think that the the immediate natural knee jerk rejection of things like that prevents people from getting to that point of that realization of like, well, isn't it fucking just about me? What makes it interesting is that it's not just about me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. Like it, it, it you should try not to take it as a personal insult, uh, any more than you would if someone offends a psychology professor you like or a Marvel comic <laughs> yeah. movie, you know, but again, that gets back to what we started talking yeah, about true. where it's like, you know, you taste, you know, there's that line in High Fidelity, right, which I kind of invert in the book, where it's like, it's not what you are like, but what you like, or what you don't like. Right. Now, the thing about that line in High Fidelity, both the movie and the book, is we're not supposed to take that at face value. We're supposed to say, anyone who thinks this is a child. Right, you know? totally. Uh, but, but now it's kind of become the case, where it's like, what I like is my identity, and any insult against Batman is an insult against me. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. I don't know how to move past that, except for putting a total boycott on every Batman movie ever made. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that. The 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 the, the Nolan. Uh, there's like such a the speed of Batman. There's such like a looking back in my in, like just looking the review at, at when Nolan took on the Batman franchise, which in isolation those movies I f I think are there's a debate as to whether they're interesting or good, whatever. I'm not like actually shitting on those movies, but what that sort of the, the effect that had on subsequent movies and not only superhero movies, but actual movies I think has, has, has been gen genuinely awful for, for movies. This sort of like this, this insistence on realism in a thing that is utterly and absolutely unreal and not even tethered in any way to reality is so incongruous to me that I almost I'm I disengage immediately when something is steeped in like trying to be this gritty real thing, which he yes. does. He, he mastered that. I mean, he's excellent at doing that. Um, but that is that is a non-starter for me because I think that that is just out of the gate so deeply confusing and almost 
discombobulating f- for me. Yeah, know? I mean, I, I agree. Like, uh, we're saying I agree to each other a lot. I know. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, for real. I mean, I, I think that, like, yeah, I agree with you. Like, those those Nolan Batman movies, you know, especially compared to any one of the Marvel movies, they're a cut above. Right. No doubt. Absolutely. Um, but it's like the influence they've had in other franchises. Like, I have the James Bond 25 film box set here in front of me. Do I like those movies because there's realistic, gritty stories about 007 having trauma because <sighs> the woman he loved died in a car accident? like no i want to watch people fly around on jetpacks and fight villains who are like reanimated voodoo priests or you know who throw their hats as a weapon yes it's a it's a cartoon of chauvinism and now we have to expect that like there's these real emotional stakes and that everything is sort of is sort of gritty in all this i mean yeah i i it's i think there's a lot of things that we're we're talking about here that I don't know. Again, I come back to the idea of paradoxicality all the time, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, we're supposed to believe that the dumbest fucking movie franchises with the most made up comic book cartoon characters are somehow part of the real world as we understand it. Because I don't know that, that like, you know, there's always been a bias towards realism and art in a way. Right. And I mean, you go back to like painting, it's like, well, is this a good painting? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because it looks like the subject. You right. Know? But then they totally got past that with impressionism and stuff like that. But it feels like at least in, you know, big Hollywood movie going that we simultaneously are making movies about the dumbest, most unbelievable things ever but then we want them to feel very real. Right. Uh, and I don't, I don't get that. Like you watch those Marvel movies. They don't seem real to me. Right. They seem, they seem weightless. Yes. You know? Like I, I remember I was rewatching the John Woo movie hard boiled a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where Chow Yun fat is on like a, a zip line and he zips into this like triad headquarters and shoot people up. And you can see the zip line sagging and it's mm-hmm. like slow. Cause he's actually doing it. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you, you watch a Spider-Man movie and these creatures just kind of like flip and zip around. You have no sense that they're human beings right. or that they're in any real peril or any. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reality yeah the the reality obsession is 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 odd and as you say it, it's not new uh it, it, in the in, in the sense of like performative you know uh from like inception of theater up to now i think it it, it, it historically kind of is is new in terms of like theater to movies but like this this insistence on 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 reality you know i mean it's it's so common now to watch a movie with someone and they're like ah uh that would never happen like that you know and it's like what the fucking what it's a movie no shit it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. happen like that none of that would happen like that it's all fake it's yeah. it's absolutely all made up even things that are based on true stories that guy didn't really do that i don't give a fuck this is a movie yeah. this isn't this is a depiction of something that is made to either make us emote make us think something but it's not there it wasn't it doesn't exist to be a fucking facsimile of life if i wanted that i would go sit in a park and watch people and that (laughs) would seem less realistic than the fucking movie i just watched do you think there were people in like elizabethan times who were like why doesn't hamlet just kill his uncle when he finds out that he murdered his dad like I mean, why bother putting on this little play and everything <laughs> like that it's such a waste of time right yeah uh, i mean i'm sure the their version of that fucking existed somewhere they just didn't have a fucking microphone for it you know what i mean it, it, um, yeah or a twitter account yeah. that's like 
tomato thrower four seven eight nine. <laughs> yeah, for real. Uh, well, what what before we hop off here? Uh, what is there since you wrote it? I guess since the publication of your book, is there anything in the realm of 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 haterdom that sort of is swirling in your mind, and and particularly of this moment now? Yeah, I don't know. You mean like things that are worth taking a stand against? Maybe, or just anything about like where sort of like this state of this sort of uh, thinking is, whether it's going in some place that, that uh, is good or bad, or just really fucking anything you want to close with is cool. Yeah, I mean, what you know, looking towards the, you know, I, I'm a Canadian, but I pay attention to American politics, uh-huh. everyone. And, you know, I, I wrote this book sort of right in the, the aftermath of the Trump election and all this stuff where mm-hmm. th- th- these ideas of polarization seem to be at an all time high. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's just something that people have to be aware of. I mean, you see it now all the time too, right? It's like uh, everything has to be versus oh, it's now it's Bernie versus Bloomberg or, yeah. or, or, or uh, the Bernie bros are the same as Trump because there's, they're like trolls and whatever. Right. And, you know, I, I think that people have to be, if we actually care about a better world, which in my weaker moments I do, <laughs> I just think you have to be kind of aware. I'm going to sound so sappy here. But like I was saying before, people can be genuinely intelligent, genuinely thoughtful, but that we've kind of been hardened into this state of polarization and vindictiveness. Uh, but it's not impossible to break through. Yeah. A lot of it, it just takes sort of reorienting people's perspective, making people care about things on their own terms and making people realize that, you know, often there is an alternative. Yeah. Uh, And I I, I think, you know, that's really the first step to, you know, to use the they live analogy again to sort of demystifying the world around us is being able to intuit that there's something else or that there's something better. Um, you know, people in politics are doing that. I think people in writing can do that in any number of ways. So I don't know. Uh, I'm trying not to sound too optimistic. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you look at the world today; it's hard to it it's is. hard to be an optimist. Um, but there are there are things to be hopeful about. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I want. Uh, I w- I would love to. This was fucking great. I would love to have you back. Maybe we could figure something. Maybe we could fucking disagree on shit if we have another conversation. So that that's something yes, for us I to mean, look forward to. Yeah, this is this is a problem I found even when I was promoting this book like two years ago. Is the people who are interested in talking about it are sensitive to the thesis? Yes. So then you tend to agree with them on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which, but again, the book is not just like being like be reactionary and you know smack back at everything. You right. know, it's it's trying to be a more sort of thorough understanding of the concept of contrarianism. So yeah, I think it's okay to agree. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, thank you so much, man. Uh, this was great, and let's do it again sometime, man. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks, man. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Bye.